0: Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free but still want to discover the seen and unseen. Shouldn't You Be In School? by Henna Kundil squeaky black shoes are back in the hall, and by now all the white polo shirts in the land, except age four to five slim fit, have been snaffled by harassed mums and dads. Yes, it is that time of year again, the time for newspaper editors to dredge up some statistics about the rising number of school refusers, anxious young people whose squeaky shoes and white polo shirts are looking set to never leave the house. The numbers are spiralling, frets the Guardian, and the Daily Mail asks, Are you raising a ghost child? Forth come the stock images of a sulky teenage girl pulling the duvet over her face, or a young boy with an oversized backpack and hands clamped firmly over his ears. A parent, frowning, is quoted as saying that the school isn't doing enough. A head teacher, eyebrows knitted, says how difficult it is without the support and cooperation of the parents then everybody shakes their heads and blames the pandemic. In my time as a school chaplain, before the pandemic, I saw how truly awful school refusal is for everyone involved. Beneath the covers, underneath the backpack, there is actually no refusal of anything. In fact, there is a campaign to get rid of this term, which I heartily support. Refusal implies there is a choice, when a young person feels so overwhelmingly anxious and afraid, there is no choice for them other than fight, flight or freeze. Parents and caregivers feel judged. Teachers are largely helpless. Social workers, when they get involved, quickly feel like they are the enemy of absolutely everyone involved. Surrounding any long-term school refuser, there is often a hot mess of frustrated adults and underneath the frustration... Sadness. Why sadness? Because we know that regardless of our views on the importance of cookie cutter educational attainments, no young person should be isolated. Even families who are committed and evangelistic about homeschooling will also schedule social activities for their children, be it membership of various clubs and organisations or group sessions of learning with other homeschooled kids. But the school refusers, I have known, have typically also refused anything like that. No scouts, no community choir, not even traipsing down to the park to hang out informally with their peers. Instead, anxiety traps them into the perceived safety of home. That one tiny corner of the world where they have a sure sense of belonging and some modicum of control. With the idea of belonging in mind, perhaps it is helpful to think about what a school actually is. The word school is multifaceted in meaning. In nature, it denotes a group of fish all swimming together. Such behaviour would seem counterintuitive since it means that all the fish are then competing for the same food or other resources. But ask any fish and it will tell you that being part of the group is itself a resource, enhancing their ability to find food and to protect themselves from predators. We could put this in a more familiar way. A school is where the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. There's also another meaning to the word school. Groups of creatives or philosophical thinkers whose styles and methods influence and complement each other. For instance, his paintings are those of the Impressionist school. We can see how in these schools people spark off one another, constantly developing and refining their own work in response to the work of others. Those with greater skill and experience mentor those who are just beginning. In this respect, we could say that a school is where people can push the boundaries of human creativity and knowledge. Since the ancient days, when learners gathered around the Greek philosophers first to listen, then to discuss, and then to refine ideas. We have gathered our young people into schools for the purpose of educating them. We have long acknowledged that the best learning is a group activity, which takes place over time. This is why homeschoolers also schedule the clubs and activities, not just because children need friends, although that is important, but because there is a particular other kind of human progress that happens when we have to rub along with other people. When learners are placed in groups, ideas can be tested, boundaries can be overcome, creativity meets with critique. The whole quickly becomes greater than the sum of its parts. You may notice that many schools promote themselves as being a learning community or family, it's not just about being twee. Research shows that promoting a sense of belonging reduces the amount of school refusal and non-attendance. We know that belonging matters, as Bell Tyndall has recently discussed in another article on Seen and Unseen, and that a sense of belonging can impact our health and even our mortality. Well, I told you so, says the fish. This was something the early Christians knew too. In the first few decades after Jesus' life and ministry, they gathered in groups to pray and to discuss, just like those earlier followers of Plato and Aristotle had done. There was an eagerness to learn from those who had heard Jesus' teaching firsthand, and to develop and refine their understanding of what that teaching could mean in practice. It was a school, although they called it a church, or, strictly speaking, an ecclesia, in the Greek, which means a gathering of people. In the Ecclesia, there was good-natured debate, but there was also some spicy disputes and arguments, along with a lot of discussion about who was in and who was out, something which is also a hot topic in the school playgrounds of today. Into that context, Paul, one of the first leaders of the Ecclesia, wrote that the church was a bit like a human body, in which... The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. His point was the belonging is about knowing not just that you belong, but that you are needed. In a human body, different parts have different roles. And Paul also asked his readers to consider this point. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear? Where would the sense of smell be? I have seen that schools do often try very, very hard to communicate to young people that they belong. But shackled to the syllabi and never more than a few short months away from the next round of exams or individualised assessments, it's much harder for schools to show young people that they are needed. With our present system... How can we show young people that even if they are not predicted to be the student in the class who gets straight A's, their presence there in the group and their role in the learning process is vital and contributes to the learning of others? When it comes to the presence of absence among our young people, schools have often gone as far as they can practically go, as have parents, as have social workers. And the young people themselves, well, they are stuck. Biologically, their only options are fight, flight or freeze. So that leaves us, the society that overemphasizes individualized achievement, that glorifies celebrity and individual success. In adulthood, we so quickly forget how to do school. How to model it to our young people, swimming all together in a way designed to promote human knowledge, protect each other from danger, or even just ensure that everyone gets fed. No wonder our young people absorb a sense that their presence isn't needed. But in so many areas of life, it's every fish for themselves. As adults, perhaps we should be asking ourselves the question, why aren't we in school? To School on the Big Screen by Yaroslav Walker. The summer is coming to an end. The last barbecue embers are spluttering to sleep. The weather appears not to have been told, at least not in London, sweltering. Most importantly of all, our children are back to school, nursery or college. In light of this momentous time of year, here are my top five back-to-school film choices each one for the last five decades, and some honourable mentions. 1970s, American Graffiti. American Graffiti isn't just a lovely piece of nostalgia now, it was back then. A misty-eyed look back at 60s Americana. This film is packed with slick back hair, classic cars, diners with roller-skating waitresses, and the complexities of teenage romance. Four friends meet on the last day of summer to experience the joys of a California evening one last time before two of them jet off to college back east. Kurt is unsure about his future and is even considering staying in his hometown. Steve is hubristically thrilled about the prospect of fleeing his humdrum life and even shedding his loving girlfriend for new conquests. Terry is insecure and simply desperate to prove he is as good as everyone else. And Milner is the older friend who never left town and is a local legend drag racer. Over the course of a long night, they go their separate ways, have adventures, and finally find some closure to their ongoing anxieties. One finds new confidence, another begins to take risks, another learns to be happy with his lot, and Milner wins a drag race. Oh, and learns the genuine happiness that can be found in adult responsibility. It's too long, but it is a lovely atmosphere to meander about in, and is edited superbly, so it never really drags. Superb performances and a soundtrack bursting with 50s and 60s hits, this is well worth a watch. 1980s, The Breakfast Club. Well, what else could it have been? In many ways the film set the classic pattern of US high school living, which did and sometimes still does inform UK attitudes, and the high school movie. John Hughes didn't invent these archetypes and wasn't the first to put them on celluloid, but he was the master of crystallising them. The Breakfast Club presents an all-day detention that just so happens to have a representative from each social caste of the high school system. Andrew the Jock, Emilio Estevez, Brian the Nerd, Anthony Michael Hall, Alison the Weirdo, Ali Sheedy, Claire the Popular Girl, Molly Ringwald, and Bender the Burnout, Judd Nelson. These five kids have nothing in common but their dislike for the domineering vice-principal. Paul Gleason was born for this role. Or do they? Whereas American Graffiti explored the process of maturing into adulthood and the taking charge of one's sense of self, with the background hum of Vietnam paranoia and the end of golden Americana days, The Breakfast Club is much more forthright in demonstrating just how difficult being a teenager is. These kids don't need help growing up. If anything, they need to be allowed to be kids. Over the course of the day, they're Defenses break down, and they learn that each of them has expectations and pressures that seem overwhelming, and grown to have genuine respect and compassion for one another. A script that is sometimes on the nose and prone to soliloquy is saved by the sheer bravura of the performances. A go to comfort film that will always be iconic. Any film which ends with simple minds is a five star affair for me. The 1990s, the faculty. We move to a slightly scary affair with the 90s. The faculty asks the question you are all asking. What if invasion of the body snatchers took place in an American high school? The answer is subtext. A lot of subtext and allegory. You know when you're a teenager everything can seem quite tough. The world can seem like it's against you. It can seem like everyone you know has changed overnight and you're lost in a sea of hostile faces. It can seem like a parasitic alien is using your school as a beachhead for planetary takeover. The faculty is cinematic junk food and unapologetically so. It is camp and silly and fun. It takes those Hughesian archetypes, puts them on steroids and then throws them into a plot joyfully riffing on the most classic sci-fi and horror tropes, all held nicely together with a quip-filled Kevin Williamson screenplay. An underrated Robert Rodriguez directorial effort, which shows that he can work well across genres, and an excellent opportunity to see early performances from Josh Hartnett, Elijah Wood, John Stewart and... Wait, is that Usher in that film? the 2000s. The History Boys. Yes, we move to British shores at last. Alan Bennett's stage play is brought to beautiful cinematic life by original director Nicholas Heitner, who has an excellent track record of translating Bennett's work from stage to screen. It's another flash of nostalgia, which all such films are, as adult writers and directors look back to their own school days and teenage angst and adventure which transports the viewer to 1980s Sheffield. A group of friends at the local grammar school have all done very well in their A-levels and are now put to the task of preparing for the Oxford entrance exams. All are lovers of history, well, maybe not Rudge, and have received an enviously eclectic education in the full gamut of culture from the eccentric and long-suffering Hector. Like all the films above, The History Boys explores the challenges of adolescence, but with a specific focus on doing well, in a particularly British way. Sporting excellence or popularity aren't the measure of student success. Oxbridge is. The teachers don't push the young men nearly as much as they do themselves, seeing a place at Oxford as the best form of advancement. The witty and moving script also touches on the issue of infatuation, attraction, sexual fluidity and chaste reciprocity. Posner's love for Dakin being encouraged only so far in some sort of mutually agreed standoff. Dakin's willingness to sleep with his substitute teacher Irwin and, of course, Hector's tradition of giving the boys a ride home on his motorbike and appreciating them aesthetically not easy subject matter, but written and directed and shot and performed with such sensitivity that you can't help but fall in love with every character. The 2010s The In-betweeners movie. We end with crudity. Crudity and friendship and a booze-filled week in Crete. Lovers of the TV show I was One, which explored the trials and tribulations of four unpopular, unremarkable and unfortunate teens in a British comprehensive school, were well served by this upgrade. TV comedies like plays rarely translate well. The In-Betweeners movie is an honourable exception. Will, Simon, Jay and Neil have come to the end of their school days and decide that they need one final hurrah before they go their separate ways. The preceding 90 minutes is a torrent of drunken antics, foul-mouthed discourse and crass toilet humour, all threaded together by hapless and fruitless sexual intrigue. 90 minutes of that might seem like it would wear thin, but the in-betweeners movie is too kind-hearted to go stale, unlike its successor, which was a genuinely squalid and unpleasant affair which had me questioning humanity. The four young men are so pathetic in the true sense of the word that you can't help but cheer for them. The overall message of friendship as a virtue that transcends the ups and downs of life give the salty humour a sweet edge. For a certain generation, mine, this might be the definitive British school movie. And the honourable mentions go to... Greece. Sort of like American graffiti, but better. I'm talking Dravolta, I'm talking Newton-John, I'm talking songs that are bulletproof. Graffiti is on the official list because it speaks to the many cultural and political undercurrents of the time. But Greece is so much more fun. If you can only see one of the two, see Greece. Gregory's Girl Pipped by breakfast because of the archetypes and simple minds, but probably one of the finest British rom-coms ever. Mean Girls. Obviously. It's so fetch. (laughs) Looking Evil in the Face by George Pitcher It's a commonplace remark that Ukraine has a troubled history, It's almost a means of assimilating its current Russian conflict. Ukrainians are used to suffering and fighting, so here we go again. But, lest we forget, it's as well to be reminded on a regular basis of the nature of Ukraine's suffering. This week, Channel 4 broadcast a documentary called Ukraine Holocaust Ground Zero, which traced through contemporaneous photography academic commentary and survivors' witness how ukrainian jews suffered and died in their hundreds of thousands perhaps as many as 1.6 million at the hands of nazis soviets and ukrainian nationalists vocabulary fails harrowing doesn't even begin to touch the experience of watching a program like this but i think watch it we must especially those with the religious faith who use words like hope and faith. The problem of evil, known in scholastic circles as theodicy, has been a stumbling block for the Christian faith for centuries. If God is all-powerful, the problem states, he cannot love us if he allows this to happen. If he loves us, he cannot be all-powerful for it to happen. Ergo, he cannot both be all-powerful and all-loving. Counter-arguments, which needn't detain us here, are many and varied. That the gift of free will includes the freedom to abandon God for evil. That the light of love shines brightest in darkness. That the world is fallen, lapsarian, and has to find its way back to the garden. That God is joined to the suffering of humanity on the cross. After Channel Four's film, I have to say that I'm less interested in all that than in what it actually means for us in a practical sense. I'm left wondering less why than how. I don't want to know why God allows it. I want to know how we respond. Allow me to say as honestly as I can how I literally responded to this documentary. I had to watch it alone on Channel 4's website. I wonder why that is. Perhaps watching it with someone else is too much like entertainment. Perhaps there's a fear that the act of sharing is dissipating in some way. Perhaps it's a dirty little secret that I wanted to watch it through clenched fingers. The second literal reaction I'd record is that when a photograph came on screen of one of the most grotesque, though relativity here is invidious, perpetrators of the mass murders, S.S. Obergruppenführer Friedrich Jecklin, I found myself saying in his image on the screen, rot in hell. I find it hard to believe in a place of unending torment to which a benign god dispatches human souls. I do believe in the hells like this one in Ukraine that men like him can create on earth. But I knew I'd found the limit of human forgiveness and this was infinitely beyond it. And somehow, I wished there was an eternal damnation to which Yeklin could be consigned. A third reaction to identify is more passive. I had to watch it, or rather, I couldn't look away. Please, God, may that not be said to be curiosity. Surely not, when you know how scarring it will be. It contained, and here perhaps I should issue a trigger warning for the rest of this paragraph, details of how the death squads moved on from men of military age to women and children because they were too expensive to feed, how 90 orphan children were murdered in one massacre for the same reason, how Yeklen developed a system of execution to maximise space in mass graves called sardines, I'm conscious of the title for which I wrote this article when I say that what is seen can't be unseen and the horror must stay with anyone who watched this programme. To look away is to conspire with a pretense that it isn't there or couldn't have happened. I wonder whether that means the Christian bears a duty not to look away any more than we can look away from an innocent, naked young man left hanging in the midday sun, nailed to a cross. In witnessing these horrors, we're not being brave, we're acknowledging human reality. And that human reality means that it really is no good saying never again. From the ethnic cleansing of Muslims in the Bosnian War, to the Rwandan genocide of the Tutsi minority in the 90s, to the Iranian mass graves of dissidents being revealed even today, that is a failed resolution. So is a faith in vain? It's hard to argue a case for the divine in the face of a 91-year-old Janine Weber, who says quietly on Channel 4, They killed my brother. They buried him alive. He was seven. Meanwhile, 86-year-old Bella Chenovet says of that countless million-plus... God keep them in paradise. Perhaps we pray like that. I don't know. It's impossible to conclude an article like this without being glib or fumbling for closure because there are no conclusions. So I'll just stop here. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to get more curated articles from Seen and Unseen Aloud. We hope you discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than you ever imagined.